Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here again with... Keith Phipps. Genevieve Kosky. And Tasha Robinson. On last week's episode, we discussed The Thief of Baghdad, producer Alexander Korda's 1940 fantasy based on folk tales from Arabian Nights. This week, we bring in 3,000 Years of Longing director George Miller's visually and intellectually ambitious follow-up to Mad Max Fury Road. Adapting the A.S. Byatt short story, The Djinn and the Nightingale's Eye, the film stars Tilda Swinton as Alethea Binney, a British scholar who specializes in the field of narratology, which concerns how various cultures use storytelling as a way of making sense of a world that they could otherwise not explain. While in Istanbul for a presentation, Alethea acquires an ornate bottle from a bazaar that catches her eye. When she takes it back to her hotel room and opens it, she's startled when a giant djinn, played by Idris Elba, pops out of it. For liberating him from the bottle, the djinn offers Alethea three wishes. But as a narratologist, she's highly suspicious of the request because she knows djinn's reputation as tricksters whose wishes often backfire. That leads to a long discussion between the two in the hotel where the djinn tells stories about his millennia of existence and an intimacy develops between them. Will they each get what they wish for? And will they even know what that is? We'll talk about it after the break. My name is Alethea. My story is true. I am a solitary creature by nature. I have no children, no siblings, no parents. I did once have a husband. If there is fate, who can say? But in the Grand Bazaar of Istanbul, I chose a memento. I like it. Whatever it is, I'm sure it has an interesting story. So what would you wish for? What is your heart's desire? I do have a question. What does one do with three wishes? Okay, so let's talk about the the hit film, 
3,000 years of longing. Hope our uh, listeners were able to catch it before really, it really slunk out of theaters. Really hope they were. Uh, how does a fantasy for adults in this box office uh, world and the at the very end of August with no no decent promotion whatsoever? Not great. Anyway, uh, so what did uh, what did you all think of this uh, orphaned little picture? I feel like we are both behind the curve in the sense that this film may not even be in theaters when this episode comes out and ahead of the curve, because I think this film is going to have uh, champions over the years. I mean, I think it's quite good, but even if it weren't, I think it's just sort of like the auteur with a historically unpopular film you know, it's going to boomerang back. People are going to take an interest in that. And I think there's a lot here to like, too. I think it's a little bit of a difficult film. I think the pacing is weird. The stakes are weird in terms of your investment or lack thereof in the characters. I think it's pretty heady and intellectual in a lot of ways. It's very crafted and like kind of both painterly and writerly in a way that gets in the way of like really connecting to it. And I think the end is badly structured and and doesn't serve the narrative. But like this whole film is just kind of like straight my jam. Like it's it's the exact <laughs> kind of thing that like it's it's very much like Tarsum's The Fall. Um, as I have said before, when the first trailers hit, people that I didn't even know had heard of The Fall were like, oh, is this George Miller's The Fall? I mean, I like stories about storytelling, which I know is a turnoff. I saw some people on Twitter big time mad because this is a story about storytelling. Like they resent that structure on a basic level. I love that kind of thing. I love this kind of like big, rich pageantry thing. I kind of love two people who are romantically attracted but don't want to talk to each other about it. So they kind of assume it all within, uh, you know, big metaphor and, and resisting everything. I like stories about people with big emotions who feel a need to repress them, but you can still feel them like bubbling and burning through. And I I just like the ridiculous pageantry of this movie. I really dug it. I, I enjoyed it on the screen. I enjoy I've enjoyed thinking about it ever since. I absolutely understand people who think it's bad for a million different reasons, but I am not one of them. I didn't like love this movie, but I wouldn't go so far as to say any part of it was bad. And I, I'm just looking sideways at anyone who rejects all stories about storytelling out of hand as somehow worthless. Like, yeah. it's fine if it's not like your specific jam. But like, I mean, The Prince's Bride is a story about story. Like, there's a there's so many great stories about storytelling out there. So, you know, that that is not a valid reason to me to reject this film. I... I'm still kind of putting together my own thoughts on this film. I, I saw it just last night in a theater with four other people in it. So, but, not, <laughs> but honestly, not bad for a Tuesday night. <laughs> you know, uh, how did you bring? No, actually, I brought my husband. I, I was not including him in that four. So there were six okay. people total in the theater. So, but I was surprised at how much more I gravitated toward the hotel room scenes than the the pageantry of the the stories the flashbacks that the the jinn was was telling and i think it's just because i really enjoyed the character of alethea like interrogating the this story as it was unfolding and and sort of the the dubiousness that that she brought to it 
I'm interested to hear you say, Tasha, like, you know, how you see this passion between them, sort of like developing and growing, because to me, it felt very out of the blue when she makes her first wish of, uh, can you fall in love with me? Like, it felt out of the blue, but it also worked because it came right on the heels of this story that seemed to inspire it. And that felt like that underlined the power of storytelling message. The fact that like this, this one tale could clarify things for her immediately like that. So like, even though I didn't read it the same way you did, is that it of it like developing it, out of nowhereness also worked for for me <laughs> in the context of of this story if that makes sense that said like it's not a neat film you know and it it really feels like a story built around like three stories and three wishes and like it it, ha- it should have sort of like a built-in structure that you can kind of feel it straining against at times uh, especially at, at the end I think but those sort of two-hander scenes between Tilda Swinton and and Indris Elba really feel like the heart of, in the hotel room specifically, really feel like the heart of the movie for me, more so than any of sort of the the big lush visuals of the Jin stories. Which is a surprise, right? I mean, this is George mm-hmm. Miller given given the the a little the cash to let his uh considerable imagination run wild i mean i i wouldn't say i necessarily favored one type of scene or the others because i did i did like the stories within the stories but i did appreciate that the film could hold these two things in balance could be this very sort of intimate love story really and, and also um this transporting colorful fantasy and it could be both of those things at once and then it could be so thoughtful about them I, it, you know what was so refreshing to me about this film which i incidentally i like quite a bit was that was this thought of just like we are expected as adults to engage in fantasy movies all the time that's what that's what's popular now but it is rare that we that that the fantasy movies come to us <laughs> this is a film for for grown-ups this is a, a, who are having you know have very who are sophisticated people uh who have true existential crises both of them uh together and and apart and that it's going to be a film of of ideas as well as a, you know a film that's that's transporting and romantic and everything you want from a fantasy as well so as as maybe as imperfect as it is i appreciate what it is and and and, and i feel like there's a richness to this film um that it's gonna it's gonna help it over the long haul as keith said i think it's the type of movie that that tends to age well over time because it be, because it is because george miller is this established auteur and it is such kind of a kind of an odd duck of a movie and a type of movie that certain people will champion very passionately so i i, I don't know I, I like i like i like the the long play of uh enjoying this film i think it's gonna i think it's gonna stick around did any of you in your screenings i think probably not since i think you all saw it at early screenings but i had before mine the uh, sort of message from the director I did. uh the, you know too. like thanking me for seeing it in, in, in a theater uh yeah I like that, but it's also sad because I think a lot so of people who who do, who do who will end up seeing this are not going to see it in the theater. So the vast, the, the, vast majority of them. That was uh, the that was you didn't see it until now, Genevieve. But but that 
the Tom Cruise did that for oh for right. Top Gun <laughs> no, Maverick. No, yeah, yes, I, I heard that. Yeah, yeah. And so I, so uh, which I you, did not see Maverick in the theater. Seeing. So ha- you're, yeah, jokes you're, on you, Tom Cruise. How, how but how I did people, see three thousand. How many, how many people longing. could say that? Could say, you know what? I skipped <laughs> Top Gun Maverick in the theater, but I made sure to go out and see three thousand years of longing. Uh, I think decades. they should start shooting these things at the same time and have crossover. So it should have been Tom Cruise and George Miller at the three thousand years of longing screening saying. Thank you so much for seeing this in the theater. I hope you saw Top Gun Maverick in the theater too. And then Tom Cruise could just sit there and like make make sad face and say, you know, if you if you haven't, you're really letting me down. I've got a special message for you over there. If you if you want to stay after this one and go over to my theater. I know the whole um, thing is kind of nonsense anyway, but I am kind of shocked to see this got a B cinema score. You think it would do? You thought it was going to do better or worse? Worse. It just seems yeah. like the kind of film. But I guess you know, if you get people in the theater, I guess they'll like it. I guess there's a lot to like here. I don't, I don't know. I think it's also it's got two Marvel stars in it. Wasn't yeah. was Scott the one who wrote the piece about how a cinema score is basically just a, a grade of like how much what's on the screen matched what people imagined they were going to see? Mm-hmm. I'd like, I, I think they did a very good job of marketing this movie as what it actually is. I don't necessarily think there were a lot of people sitting in the theater going, what is this fantasy thing? I thought I was seeing a realist drama or, you know, whatever. Yeah, that that did uh, they market this movie? I was just gonna say. <laughs> I, I mean, I saw but tons of uh trailers and and ads for it. It felt like they were advertising it fairly hard. If they couldn't reach you, <laughs> they're they're in really big trouble, right? As the, Maybe it as was the just hyper directed towards me. Like they they've heard <laughs> exactly. me going on and on about exactly. the fall and they're get like Tasha into the press screening. Step one. Uh, Get Tasha to see it. Step two, get her to want to see it 300 million more times, paying full price each time. <laughs> yeah. As far as looping back to what Genevieve said about like not feeling the romance between the characters, I do think that Alethea's boldness in saying, like, okay, my wishes for uh, you to fall in love with me is a surprise. I, I think that her having the courage to own her own desire in that way definitely comes as like a narrative out of the blue because it's not really the what we've been seeing of the character who is you know intellectual and and contained and cautious but also in many ways very sure of herself you know when she decides all right the conclusion here is that uh, i have to make three wishes Uh, i wish this headache would go away and that i had another plate of these like she is is very quickly and definitively defining what she wants the world to look like but she's also like speaking to a an imminent practicality so the the romanticism of i want you to fall in love with me comes as a surprise but the two of them kind of falling for each other i don't know like when the jinn first appears and it becomes clear that he's going to tell his life story and he kind of opens with I've got a huge weakness for powerful intellectual women and I fall for them like crazy and completely lose myself in them. I'm like, yeah, we see where this is going, buddy. We we see what you're saying. <laughs> and it's also almost just got a like a pickup artist like level of like clarity and seduction to it. I'm just saying my weakness is incredibly powerful, confident, uh, intelligent women, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. So like, I, <laughs> I, I think he puts it on the table fairly early that she's the kind of person that he would fall for. And then she's looking back at a figure out of narrative and her entire life is studying narrative. Her obsession is narrativism and narrative autology. 
Neurotology? I'm not sure. Is that a word that A.S. Byatt made up? Because that was definitely not a field of study I'd heard of. I don't think so, but I don't know that you necessarily have a narratology apartment at, apartment at every single <laughs> <Or a> conference. <laughs> yeah, every single college you go to. Uh, like a pretty exciting presentation. I wouldn't. I wouldn't mind. I, I was. It, I was engaged. A conference. I can believe they have conferences about everything. Yeah, I mean, and it seems like a you know, uh, there's a lot of sort of logic behind it, and um, and some meaning to it as well in terms of how, how storytelling operates, how how we how the ways the ways it gets it gets used, the power of it, all that is expressed quite well in the movie. And I, you know, and to go, get back to what you were saying about Alethea, I, I I like that the film, you know, has her acknowledge this desire that she has for something more without selling her out you know because i because I, I think she you know that there is you know a point of pride with her that she is this accomplished person that she is okay being on her her own that that she lives a life that is fulfilling uh or maybe she's maybe it's i you know so she doth protest too much or something about that but but i i do but i think that it allows her to kind of keep her integrity and and her dignity while admitting that she does have these does actually have a desire out to, to live a life that's a little bit has another dimension that she that, that her current life doesn't have and i think that you kind of see him break down those walls for her because she starts from a very distanced outside the story perspective where she says like all right i understand now that i'm in a story but here are the rules of stories like this and this is why i'm not going to buy into the elements of a story like this like i'm not going to play the game that the story is asking me to play and then by the end of that act, she's overtly playing the, the part that the story is asking her to play. Like she consciously makes the decision to go from I am outside this and studying it intellectually to I have decided to step into this and, and give way to it emotionally. And I just think that that's a powerful element. Like it's presented in a very removed and intellectual way in its way. But I think somebody... Somebody not wanting to be the sucker who falls in love, who then falls in love, like, that's practically every screwball comedy. That's practically every rom-com. There's a reason that that narrative is so satisfying and we return to it so often. So we're talking a lot about Alethea, which kind of backs up my point about <laughs> that being the, those scenes being more interesting than the Jin's stories. But I do want to hear what you all thought of the Jin stories and if there were any that stuck out or any characters or elements of them that worked or didn't work for you. I will say that I found that the Golton sequence to drag on a, a bit and I, I was not really a fan of the <laughs> way that uh, the Jin's bottle was discovered by a, a large woman falling and breaking a block. Um, With I, 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 right. Yeah, yeah. Setting aside like specific elements of that particular story, I d it did feel like it took up a lot more space than the Jin's other stories. Am I alone in feeling that way? The last one, you mean the last one? No, the, no, middle, no, one? the middle one. I liked. I liked the Zephyr story. All oh, right, um, got it. Qu quite a bit. But I'm talking about the so like the Queen of Sheba part was the first story. It was very mm -hmm. short, and then the Zephyr story was the last one, and it was 
also pretty short. And I feel like we got a lot of the middle part. Oh, right. I don't feel yes. like Golton's story specifically takes up too much space or is too long. I think the problem is that there's just too much cruft on that story. Like the whole <laughs> sideline about Ibrahim and his his room made out of fur and his like large very, very naked uh, concubines all over the place. There's just a lot more of that than there needs to be to set up the unfortunate gag of fat lady fall down, go boom. There's just, uh, you know, the core of that story being like, here's the first story. It's how I was in love with this woman and someone else was better at love than I was and seduced her and I lost her and my freedom. Like, that's very simple and, and very concise and I think very powerful, especially as a first love story. And then the second story is, this time I wasn't a fool and I didn't fall in love, but this woman wanted things that she felt was were right and led to disaster and that hurt because I came to care about her. And that also is a very simple, I think, tight story. And then it just has all of this stuff around it mm-hmm. that goes on way too long and does not contribute to that specific story. There's another storyteller within it who dies, <laughs> you know, that, that is brought in to soothe the angry sultan. And, and yeah, like, there's just a, like a, a all lot of, of this, extra stuff. All the stuff I kind of wanted more kids. of that guy, though. I liked, I liked him. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> all the stuff with the kids running around that wasn't particularly additive and, you know, Ibrahim's fate and just like... There's just a lot more like lace around the edges of that story than we needed to get from from point A to point B. But I actually didn't care for the Zephyr story as much. Like to me, that was the one that went on and on and on because that story is basically like this time I was in love, but it was a relationship of of equals. It wasn't as first, but I made her into an equal. And once she was fully my equal, she could see that I was controlling her and she wanted none of it anymore. Like that also at the bones is a very simple story, but there was just, there was so much repetition in it, you know? I think that story also works on another level as well, because it's, it's, she is a, you know, a, a, a person of intellect, uh, a, a person who interested in science and he's, she's basically creating, laying the groundwork for the era of Althea's, you know, Althea lives in where, where science has sort of made these kind of mythological creatures uh, forgotten or irrelevant or, or you know, fading to the to the margins. I, I I like that, you know, and I think the way they made the the love story, and you know, like her, her discarding of him, part of that love story uh, as well. I, I thought it's just kind of uh, it was sometimes I felt maybe the earlier stories were were less connected directly to what the the framing story was doing and that was kind of one where it kind of clicked into places like oh wait they're they're this is commenting on on the 21st century that that the gen finds himself in as well kind of made me want to go back and rewatch the whole thing and see if there were more kind of connections and there was more of a progression that way as of as of as like of the gen's march you know of uh, through history into a world which he couldn't really exist anymore I really like that point. I think that's a really yeah. smart point. And it is the the story that inspires Althea to make this this move and to, to make her wish and to let go of or, and give herself up to desire and love and, and everything. So sure. the connection between her and Sophia is the very, mythic age. Right? Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I think the first story is a story of the mythic age and the fact that we we see the Queen of Sheba's entourage and it's full of all of these mythological creatures that 
you know, have have passed from the world or are mostly invisible, although we catch like glimpses and hints of them in the opening act. And we know that they're still around. They're just, as you say, forgotten. And then the Second Age is very specifically about the losing of magical artifacts and the kind of like hunger to re-enter the world on a larger scale, which even when he finally does, uh, he's promptly shunted out of it. So in the third case, he re-enters the world, but only for one person and only within one room. And even in the end, he's kicked out of that. We're we're just we're seeing the walls closing in on him in terms of his world and his access to it getting smaller and smaller throughout in a way that even outside the bottle, like the space that he has goes away more and more and more as the world shrinks around him. So where, where does this a movie like this kind of sit in George Miller's filmography? I mean, he, he's a, he is a director who has dealt with fantasy before with a lot of sort of odd elements but this this still is kind of singular where, where, where do you see this as landing for him you know i have always thought of his filmography as this kind of like big idiosyncratic kind of like messy thing that doesn't make a whole lot of sense like i finding the the links between lorenzo's oil and happy feet or between bay pig in the city and and mad max fairy road was and always too and, and happy feet too true he did not direct the no wait he did direct the first happy feet he didn't direct the first babe yeah. he directed both happy feet and uh pig yeah. in the city he produced the first babe Joshua Rivera over at Polygon wrote this piece that I I think is just really intelligent in terms of of breaking it all down as far as Miller returning to the same two themes over and over. One is how we destroy the world, you know, which you see a lot very literally in in Mad Max right down to the the line like who destroyed the world. And here we're seeing like the rise of electronics and electronic devices is in the end what's destroying the gen what's he can't live in a world of of technology because we've like filled the the air with all of this noise uh he he can't live in the world anymore but you know mm. it's something that's very overt in uh the the happy feet movies it's something that's very overt in the mad max movies and the other one is just the the question of why do we live the way we do and and do we have to do that? And uh, in, in Joshua's piece, the, the title that it ended up having is um, every George Miller movie is a Mad Max movie. He kind of mm -hmm. like draws out the specific connections of, you know, between Babe the Pig turning to the dogs, chasing him and, and saying, why? Why are you doing this? And the brides in Mad Max Fury Road saying, you know, we're not we're not things. Why should we have to live this way? Why can't we go leave, live in the green place? And the parents in Lorenzo's oil saying, why does the medical establishment have to be like this? Why can't we acknowledge that, you know, every disease has a cure? Like, why can't we go look for it? And the witches and the witches of Eastwick saying, like, why do women have to be treated the way they are? Why can't they be people in their own right? Just over and over and over, you know, everywhere Max, Mad Max goes, he's asking, why do you live this way? And is there another way to do it? 
And I, I think it's a really interesting act of, of synthesis of all of these themes that George Miller brings up. I got to talk to him about this movie, and he, he kind of confirmed it, that he's obsessed with the environment and what we're doing to it. And he's obsessed with just like asking the basic questions. So that's kind of a, a like a long wandering answer. But uh, no, man, for me, it just it really made a lot of pieces fall into place that had never made sense for me before. Well, that's that's really interesting. I mean, I I would have just kind of thought about it in terms of style, in terms of just his willingness to treat, uh, to bring kind of this this operatic sort of passion to everything that he does. I mean, that's kind of what sets Lorenzo Zoyle, which is one of my favorites of him, his apart. It's just you you have this movie that is um, the stuff of gloppy, almost like TV movie melodrama, but enjoy in his hands becomes this just extraordinarily passionate and operatic work and and you get that uh, i think here as well um of of just his style giving a lot of heat to this relationship and to in into these uh stories and stories within stories Uh, but i like all that other stuff too Uh, that was uh joshua rivera uh writing about that or is this this is some of this is tasha robinson no, no, this is, I mean, it came out of part, um, in part out of reading Kyle Buchanan's book of about Fury Road and like rewatching all of these films and like in part out of interviews with Miller, just kind of, as I say, synthesis. But yeah, I, I was finding it so hard to reconcile the same director making Happy Feet and like Fury Road both in terms of style, in terms of of mode, like the difference between a, a children's animated CG film about dancing penguins and a movie famed for its practical effects. But that's something else I talked to him about in the interview. And he was just like, it, it's all storytelling. Like you use whatever tools work for the story. The important thing is, is the narrative itself and just suiting the medium to the narrative, which... Like, I like that idea, but man, there's there's so many filmmakers that love a specific kind of mode of storytelling. It's what they're good at, what's their, what they're interested in. It's just really interesting to look back on his filmography and, and see somebody who literally does see CGI penguins rapping and like men literally jumping from from one speeding vehicle to another as stunts as like, gee, it's just all the exact same discipline. I'm uh, curious, uh, Tasha, since since you talked to him, or maybe the, you, uh, the rest of you, have insight too. But like, he is for the most part also credited as a writer on all of these projects. And do you know how involved he is at the screenplay level versus sort of writing within the process of directing that kind of happens? I couldn't say for a lot of his projects. I mean, on this one, I know I read the A.S. Byatt short story immediately after seeing the movie. And apart from the ending, which is pretty different, it's a very, very literal translation. But, you know, he he wrote this one with his daughter, Augusta, and like the two of them hand scripted it themselves. Like it was a passion project from the start. He went to buy it and said like this story, I love this story and I want to see it on screen. It was a passion project for him given the mode in which he works, like given his specific obsessions, which honestly feel to me a little like Hayao Miyazaki level in terms of Mm -hmm. these are the strains of things that I love. I will find ways to put them into my work. I suspect that he's highly involved. High, highly involved and highly specific about what he wants. 
Well, we're going to get into, well, specifically the idea of storytelling, that that his obsession with storytelling is a major thing that uh, brings our movies together. So, so we're going to take a break and we'll be back with Connections. I am a djinn of modest power, but I begin to understand these transmissions. Oh, you've learned to speak my language. This English is straightforward. Its rules quickly learn, I find. Would you like this little Albert for yourself? No, 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 that can't be good for him. Put him back. I could expand him. I could speak with him. No, put him back. Is that the wish? This is not possible. No, it's your obligation. Now it's time for connections when we bring these two films together, talk about all the things they have in common, uh, the two films being The Thief of Baghdad and 3,000 Years of Longing. Um, storytelling, I believe, is a factor in both of these films. There's a, there's a lot of nested storytelling in this film, is there not, Keith? Yeah, and we all hate movies about uh, storytelling. No, um, <laughs> no, I don't hate that. I, I, like, I like that a lot, and I think they're both are kind of exploring you know the function of storytelling and and um in in the thief of baghdad it's kind of like you know you make certain assumptions about about people you see on the street only to realize that they have stories too and they're not always as spectacular and and uh, you know don't, don't involve being turned into dogs and actually being the king of the land or, and, and so forth but i think that's there's that there and i think the the first the way the first half loops around is is kind of neat too but i, I don't think it sends you quite down the stories within stories what are you know what is what are stories anyway uh hold that 3000 years of longing does am, am i am i wrong there or am i missing like so, sort of a more sophisticated use of storytelling in the thief of baghdad I definitely don't think they're they're layered in the same way. I mean, the the layers in Three Thousand Years of Longing almost recall maybe a little more of like the actual structure of the Arabian Nights, with where you have stories within stories. Whereas with with Thief of Baghdad, it's much more okay. Well, you know, here's here's the backstory. The here's the prologue of the film. Here's the first act of the film. We started with the second act. And you have the whole thing kind of a, a, as an act of presentation that one of the characters is doing for other characters, but also for the audience. Like it, I, I, I feel like 3000 Years of Longing is a much more like self-reflexive examining itself, turning itself inside out to see what's there kind of meta narrative. Whereas Thief of Baghdad is just it's it's a a story, you know. It's a very like literal, sincere, on its sleeve kind of fairy tale, as Genevieve said in in the first part of this conversation, um, aimed at kids. And you know, there there are few acts more sincere in storytelling than telling children a story for their for their entertainment. You know, like just looking for the exciting elements that will keep their attention. You know, and and then and then the cool hero did this cool thing. Like 3,000 Years of Longing is a much cooler story about storytelling, a much more, like, as I said, heady, intellectual. Well, if you examine stories, you'll find, whereas Thief of Baghdad is just like, and then the hero kicked ass and it was great, you know? Yeah. And like structurally, 
Thief of Baghdad feels very episodic, and which yeah. which makes sense. So, you know, it's it's drawing from a, a variety of like folklore, like different stories, kind of kind of weaving them together. And I guess like I guess if you were to like try and pinpoint like what the main story of Thief of Baghdad is. I guess it's like the prophecy of and, and Abu being that that figure. I mean, just by virtue of the film being named the Thief of Baghdad and that kind of that story happening at the beginning and getting paid off at the end. But like everything in between, it's very, like I said, episodic and like one, th- it, it feels like we're being pushed from one place to another by virtue of moving on to the next story, not because it's like what the narrative is demanding. Whereas 3,000 Years of Longing, is it's more like a story told in chapters, you know? It's the same story, and it's its divided up, and it's it's structured very purposefully. But it's, it's telling different stories within one big story that has a strong idea and purpose behind it. And there's a level of self-consciousness, too, of course, in, in 3,000 Years of Longing of, of, of um, you know, of having this character... Um, Althea, who this is her field, she knows how this all works, and and um, and so so you have that, yeah. You know, there's none of that kind of self awareness in Thief of Baghdad, but I, I think you hit it on it right, Genevieve, and the the episodic nature of Thief of Baghdad almost makes it feel like you know you're getting, it almost feels like an anthology or something where every where all these little pieces come together and they do as a patchwork form this coherent in satisfying narrative, but you get kind of a greatest hits of little stories uh, that uh, you can la- latch onto. And it almost makes it make a little bit more sense that the film was, had so many cooks in the, in the kitchen because you can have, you can put a director on one of those stories or one of those little sequences and then, you know, move on another, somebody else will tackle another thing and it all kind of comes together anyway. Looked at another way, Genevieve, I, I think you could also say that uh, Thief of Baghdad is the story of a cunning thief, how he got uh, involved with this soppy prince and how he finally got clear of him by getting him everything he ever wanted. <laughs> you know, it, it does sure. sort of seem like a chapter in the life of the adventures of this hero who very much is ending the story by going on to like more acts of fun heroism with all the cool like devices of heroism he is gathered along the way. Yeah, absolutely. I, I guess the the reason I chose the prophecy as the potential framing here is just because a prophecy is a type of story. Mm-hmm. So, uh, as, as a story about stories, it would uh, make sense to have a framing device that is like the ultimate story. You know? <laughs> yeah, it's kind of a promise, isn't it? It's it's yeah. a promise that you'll know the story is over when this thing happens because mm-hmm. we have told you up front that this is the ultimate thing that is meant to happen in this story. It's a neat device. One of the main images associated with uh, Thief of Baghdad is the jinn. You know, it's he's huge on the poster, but it's actually comprises a pretty small portion of the movie. Like it is one of the episodes, I guess, within it, and obviously a very striking one uh, that the film has become largely associated with over time. But um, you know, it is not actually a story entirely about a djinn the way that 3000 years of longing is very much a story about a djinn so i guess maybe this is a good 
time to get into those those two gins and uh very different you know they're uh i mean they're both they're both large <laughs> and they both have some kind of gnarly feet um but i think their their motivations are are vastly different and what we're given of their their motivations is is vastly different and one of the as we've kind of already talked about one of the really interesting things about uh alethea and the gins relationship is how skeptical she is of this mythical wish granting figure and sort of how she uh, puts out there like there are there are no stories about wishes being granted that are not cautionary tales and it feels like she is directly commenting on the type of jinn story that we get in thief of baghdad where like a, a, immediately there's a mistrust i guess between abu and and the jinn immediately they're immediately in conflict um in a way that is uh much like bigger and louder than the sort of tension between Alethea and, and the Jinn. And they're um and in the end the the Jinn and Thief of Baghdad, like he does resort to trickery and he does become a, a, a cautionary tale and he kind of leaves Abu hanging high high and dry. By the way, I was just I was just something nagging at me uh and it, it, I was you are correct. The plural of Jinn is Jinns. I thought it might just be might just be Jinn. Uh but <laughs> but carry on with the S. No, Sorry, thank you. Scott, thank go. you for checking me because I just guessed. <laughs> the one of the interesting things I think that the two films have in common with regard to the Jinn is that Althea and and Abu are are come from a place of skepticism you know i mean a lot a lot of people would you know i mean obviously that the jinn in in thief of baghdad takes a fairly hostile and arrogant <laughs> st- uh, stance right away he's not uh he's not and abu needs to fool him and in, in in order to kind of gain leverage again but I, but i think they both at least kind of approach it uh, althea and abu as a as a negotiation as something that they should be approaching very carefully uh because this is a very powerful being and, and a potentially sinister one and uh and so and so they kind of you know it's not he's not just this figure of fantasy because you know when you when you really think about it if, if you don't know any better you having the opportunity to fulfill your wishes uh sounds pretty great but uh, i think they, they they see through that a bit these these two heroes I mean, I think that that skepticism comes from the fact that they're both familiar with the folklore of Jin. You know, they're both in different ways and for very different reasons. One of them just because it's an intrinsic part of his culture and one of them because she's studied narratives and, and stories and the culture that she's in that is not her own. They both know what the rules are and she knows that the rules are if you make wishes, it's going to go badly. And he knows that the rule is they fit into uh, bottles. They can't escape the bottles because uh, Solomon the Wise said that they can't. And Jin are arrogant and egotistical and easily manipulated. So, I mean, I, I to me, like Abu's trick that, that gets him back in the bottle is quick thinking, but it's also very much a a weaponizing of folklore that he very clearly already knows. And the fact that both of them don't just come from a place of, of skepticism, but from a place of knowledge is just kind of an, an interesting connection in the way they both deal with the arrival of these very unexpected and, and dangerous figures. And yeah, Tasha, as you point out, like Abu and the Jin, like they only really exist in, in conflict to each other. And 
that is kind of it. that's the starting point in three thousand years of longing. But what's like interesting about it and what makes it a a deeper and richer story about a jinn is that it the relationship actually does evolve and both sides of it change. It's not this. It is an immortal being and a a human, but they come together in a way that you know they are completely separate and and don't really have any overlap in uh, as as people or as characters in uh, Thief of Baghdad. I think that there's an interesting point there where both Jin do kind of expose themselves up front in ways that that their two recipients of wishes turn against them. Like they they actually put the weapons in the hands of the mortals that they're dealing with, whether that's that's conscious or not. Abu's Jin brags about his power and his his escape from the bottle. And in in doing so, he makes it clear that that's the thing that can contain him. That's the thing that can hold him. That's the thing he has no power over. In the same kind of way, the Jin in 3000 Years of Longing, as, as I've said, kind of says up front, my weakness is beautiful intellectual women. <laughs> and he, he hands Alethea that weapon against him. Where, you know, using the wishes and and freeing him isn't necessarily the weapon against him. I, I think it's interesting that both mortals in this case see their opportunity specifically in the way they were first approached and like immediately see, well, I can change this narrative to my benefit. I can change the the shape and nature of what this narrative is. And for Alethea, it's... You're a character who is built around love, and I could have that love for myself instead of it just being something that I hear about. But for Abu, in the same way, it's kind of like, I'm a creature of power. Oh, well, if I play my cards right, I could have that power for myself instead of it just being something that I hear about. Something that you were intending to give to other people and not me because you got mad pent up in the bottle, I could manipulate you into giving it to me instead. Althea kind of goes through the same journey. I think it's also notable that sort of the the rules that Alethea's Jin lays out uh, as far as the well, and, and doesn't Alethea herself kind of like like she know she says like I know the rules like <laughs> you know <laughs> um, but like what it comes down to for that Jin is like your wish has to be your heart's desire. It just sort of takes off the table a lot of pragmatic wishes, like uh, sort of my hang up, not even hang up, but something I think about a lot with like wish driven stories is like I all and we were kind of like joking about this at the the top of the the first show. Like I always want to think of like the biggest thing that could make the biggest change and help the most people and be like put the most positive change into the universe. But stories about people getting wishes always kind of end up being about what they want personally. It kind of takes the larger world out of the equation. And I think 3,000 Years of Longing makes that very plain by tying the wishes specifically to an individual desire rather than a greater good. Uh, I think it also kind of that that ends up enforcing, uh, reinforcing the, the intimacy that's such an important part of 3,000 years of longing because then um, when you limit it to something like your heart's desire, then then it can become you know, much much more personal and then the relationship between uh, the Jin the and Althea can intensify. You know, and one of the things I really like too about, about the Thief of, of 
Baghdad is that the first wish, Abu's first wish is is the uh, is his mother to have some of his mother's sausages. You know, there's something. <laughs> I mean, that's such a great simple thing. You know, a simple, almost kind of touching kind of connection that he's able to make to that part of his life and have have it satisfied. That's his heart's desire much you know, more than more than some of the b- uh, bigger goals that he has in, in mind so uh yeah yeah i'm not sure i'd ever really internalized before like the degree to which stories about wishes aren't just stories about how your wishes can come back to bite you which you know they so often are that as alethea correctly identifies there's that's so often the structure it's just a really good way of getting at character you know, what What do you, you can have anything in the world. What do you want? Like Abu kind of reveals himself as he's got simple tastes. He's very impulsive and doesn't think through what he's saying. And he's kind of a, a simple guy with simple desires. Whereas Alethea reveals that she's got this burning desire that she didn't necessarily fully want to acknowledge but in the end she realizes she has the opportunity to um, maybe for the first time and that desire isn't just to be in love although that is a very big part of it but it's to be inside a story so both of these characters reveal themselves kind of accidentally but kind of completely to the audience through how they use their wishes and I, I think that that's just a, a fun time and a, a good device. I think it also is effective because I actually buy that Alethea is content, that she is living a life that is left her wanting very little. I think it's kind of neat the way it plays out that part of this, you know, part of this journey for her and listening to the stories is, is figuring out that she does want something, too. Uh, and uh, yeah, this is kind of backtracking a little bit, but they're really, I really kept expecting the other shoe to drop on the gen in 3000 years of longing because there really was no trickery to what he was doing. I mean, did I, did I miss yeah. something there? He's, he's a no, very earnest. I was, I was gen. in the same boat. I was, I was, I was waiting for, for it to, to turn. And the fact that it didn't, I think, is actually kind of extraordinary in the context of this type of story. It kind of plays with that too. I think, I think, and Elba's performance is really good in the sense that, you know, maybe he is withholding something. I mean, there, there's he has that, that, that quality to, to what he brings to this this performance. This role is is that that you know until the movie ends, maybe we don't know who this person or this person, this entity, <laughs> whatever you want to call him, is. <laughs> I think maybe that's because, I mean, we've, we're talking a lot about desire here. You know, the the secret desires that people hide, the desires that they wear out on their complete lack of sleeves and or shirts, and how people, you know, express desire through wish stories. But these are also both stories where love plays a very important part. You know, the, the love between Ahmad and the princess that we kind of commented on the first half is, uh, you know, kind of kind of pro forma and uh, just a, a thing that belongs in a story like this, maybe not super convincing. And then the love between Althea and her djinn are just so central, you know, to both of these stories in terms of being narrative drivers and kind of like wish fulfillment ideas. But one of them comes from a very sincere and authentic place of just two people see each other and and immediately know and the other one is 
kind of constructed via magic and kind of constructed via the the longing of the title and and the setup that the jinn offers when he first introduces himself they end up being kind of similar movie looks at love as just you know it involves a lot of looking deep into each other's eyes and or having sex or maybe just implied sex i i thought it was very interesting that the prince and princess like first meet like look deeply into each other's eyes and then just immediate fade out <laughs> that's definitely movie code for what happens next but uh that that love feels a lot more simple and and sincere and old school than the love between Althea and the jinn which in its way is very complicated both because she's bringing up this desire that she's maybe never expressed before and because in some ways like isn't he sublimating the the three women that he loved and lost into her i think that's fair to say yeah yeah i mean just talking in general about like what what does it mean to have a uh a jinn magically make himself in love with you like what is the what is the sincerity of that relationship or that love or how the audience should take that love? I'm just very curious for anybody else's take on that. I mean, I think I find it noteworthy that like how Alethea phrases it to him and and like she she asks him like she it, it, she doesn't like it's not a declarative I wish statement. It was like if I wished this, would it happen? <laughs> you, you know, and she she does kind of like seed a little of her, I guess, control over over him in that in in a way that to go to sort of a, a different gin or or genie story that uh, we brought up a bunch. I brought up a bunch in the first half, like in Aladdin, Disney's Aladdin, like the genie is specifically a tool to make the princess fall in love with Aladdin. And and it does kind of turn into a weird sort of control uh, dynamic. And what I like about Thief of Baghdad's love story is that it is completely divorced from the, the wish-granting jinn aspect of the story. Like, it's Abu who, who gets the, the wishes, and he is you know, his wish like does kind of help Ahmed, but it doesn't directly influence the princess or her her feelings or her actions in, in any way. And because there is an element in, in this wish granting of like control and taking control away from someone else and getting what you desire out of them. And to bring it back to your question, Tasha, I think that Alethea recognizes that in the way that she broaches this to to the jinn and i think she seems aware of not wanting to ask him to do something that he doesn't want to do that's how i read it anyway i'd like to think that there is something i don't know it's there's there's something a little consent questionable about i wish to use magic to make you in love with me but i think both phrasing the question and you know to some degree what she's asking is is it okay if I 
impose upon you the same kind of bondage as as these other three women who subsumed your life, who, you know, took your took your freedom, took uh, control from you. And you went willingly in all three cases, like you wanted uh, to be sort of the, the servant of all of these women in their own different ways. Would it be okay if we had that relationship? And, you know, to, to loop back in a kind of comedic way to Thief of Baghdad, there you got your bondage scene again, you know? It's like <laughs> asking, is it okay if I set up a relationship where you're desperately in love with me and and need to be with me? Is It's a pretty classic, like, kink conversation. Like, do you want to be my slave, effectively? You know, which it's not quite the same as chaining somebody up in a, in a dark dungeon and telling them they're about to die the death of a thousand cuts. But it is kind of speaking to some of the same kind of like play and pretend aspects of of sexual uh, engagement. Well, before uh, things get uh, too <laughs> hot, hot and heavy here on uh, the next picture show, maybe we should just end it there. Um, next uh, picture the, show the, after dark. That's right. Uh, the Thief of Baghdad is currently on the Criterion Channel and Prime Video, as well as the usual digital rental platforms. It can be found on Criterion Blu-ray and DVD. 3,000 Years of Longing has not been a huge hit in theaters, uh, to put it lightly, but it may be still hanging around. We'll be back with your next picture show. Finally, it's time to recommend a film or film-related item that complements this set of episodes. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Keith, what in the film world has been good for you lately? So I want to recommend this film from 1940 called The Thief of Baghdad. Really? <laughs> Actually, Sounds good. Can no, you point we, me we to a podcast on it? <laughs> sure. Yeah, we touched a little bit on it in the, this in is the a earlier story. This is a story within a story. <laughs> this is a story within a story. Uh, but there is, uh, I think it was 2002, Criterion put out a, a DVD edition that's never been upgraded to Blu-ray. But um, so you know, you're probably better off just going to the Criterion channel and checking out uh, the film there where it has a number of special features the ported over from the DVD edition. And most entertainingly, I think, most informatively at least, is, is are the two audio commentaries. One, is, as we alluded to before, is Francis Ford Coppola and Martin Scorsese, uh, both kind of just kind of fanboying out about <laughs> The Thief of Baghdad and talking about how influential it was on them and um, how it plays for their kids and just kind of other delightful stuff. Uh, Scorsese, of course, you know, kind of gets into uh, his encounter the way he encountered a lot of films, which was on television. So there's a little bit of, 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 you know, discussion there about why this film still works on a 12 inch black and white set. If you're, if you're, especially if you're a young movie hungry Martin Scorsese. Uh, the other one's by Bruce Eder, and it is sort of a more traditional, uh, here is a scholar walking through the, uh, the, the, the facts behind the film. Uh, but it's a really good one. I mean, he just kind of goes through some of the details I also touched on, which is that there aren't a lot that's known about the crazy production of this film, which has, uh, you know, three credit directors, 
three uncredited directors, uh, including, we didn't get into this, but William Cameron Menzies, a special effects expert who worked on Things to Come, who would later direct uh, Invaders from Mars, who worked on the original Thief of Baghdad. There's, there's a little continu- continuity there. But anyway, if you, I... I feel like I'm doing my own commentary <laughs> about these commentaries, uh, but they're both very much worth uh, checking out uh, if you have access to the Criterion channel. Uh, and that is what I am going to recommend for your next picture show is watch this movie again twice. Yes. And it's another good um, push to subscribe to the Criterion channel because uh, it has that, it, you know, they, they do like to throw on, a lot of those sort of goodies from from the uh, Criterion editions, which I wish more of these platforms would do. Where bring back the commentary track? Why? Why not? Yeah, sponsor us, but, Criterion Channel. <laughs> come on. <laughs> um, so that's it for this edition of the Next Picture Show. Uh, but we'll be back next week with a new pairing. Genevieve, do you want to set us up for our episodes releasing on September twentieth and September twenty seventh? Next week, we're packing our bags for the Misty Mountains, over the hills where the spirits fly, for a two-part visit to J.R.R. Tolkien's Middle Earth. First, we'll discuss 2001's The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Rings, the first of three films adapting Tolkien's magnum opus directed by Peter Jackson. Then we'll spring forward to our present while flashing back to Middle Earth's past, taking a detour into the world of television to discuss the first three episodes of Prime Video's new prequel series, The Rings of Power. We hope you and your fellowship will join us. For now, we welcome your feedback on The Thief of Baghdad, 3,000 Years of Longing, and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. Email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net or leave us a voicemail at 773-234-9730. Before we close out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Genevieve? Uh, I am the TV editor at Vulture.com, and you can find me basically tweeting out things I edited there on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky. Uh, Tasha? I am the film and streaming editor over at Polygon.com. You can find me over there writing a lot about Henry Selick's upcoming movie, Wendell and Wild, starring Key and Peele. You can also find that uh, essay I mentioned about how every George Miller movie is a Mad Max movie, meaning every George Miller movie has the same thing, whether it's got rapping penguins in it or not, over at Polygon.com. You can find me-ish on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. Keith? I'm a freelance writer. You can follow me. Keep up with all I write over at Twitter at KFIPS3000. That's my handle there. You can find my writing at places like GQ, The Ringer, Vulture, TV Guide, and The Reveal, the newsletter I do with my podcast buddy, uh, Scott Tobias. Uh, we are coming up on our one-year anniversary. Uh, may even be half passed by the time this episode comes out. Uh, but you know, well, we like what we're. we're it won't. Fun. It won't have passed, Keith. Well, it's coming. Well, then you can. You, if you're listening <laughs> to this, you can join the excitement of our one-year anniversary. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right, Scott. You can. You can. Um, uh, yeah. We we would definitely encourage uh, people to subscribe, but we would also just encourage people to sign up and see what they think and see if we're, we're worth your hard-earned cash because i think we i think we are i hope we are uh, but that you can you can kind of look at that at, at um the reveal.substack.com uh obviously um uh you find me uh, scott tobias on twitter at uh at under scott underscore tobias and um i as well in addition to the reveal i'm at uh, the new york times uh, vulture uh guardian and other fine publications you can stay updated on the next picture show at nextpictureshow.net and on twitter at nextpicturepod 
You can get bonus content and open discussion at patreon.com slash next picture show. And as always, we appreciate your ratings and reviews on Apple podcasts or wherever you listen to the show. Thanks to Dan, the baked Jakes for his assistance producing this podcast. The next picture show is proud to be part of the film spotting family of podcasts. Please tune in next time. And